Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello again, everyone. I hope the feast of Rugby World Cup action has kept you thoroughly entertained over the weekend. You are joined once again by Charlie Morgan. All right, Charlie. Morning, Colsey. And you're joined by Charles Richardson. All right, Charles. Morning, Ben. And I'm Ben Coles. The three of us are here, ready to unpack some fascinating games. In particular, Ireland, South Africa on Saturday in Paris. What a belter. And also, Wales, Australia in Lyon on Sunday. Um, gents, where were you? I was in and out of Lille. I'm oh, sorry, I jumped in there. So, so, so. That's how quick so about you. And it loves Lille. And it grew on me. It grew on me. I actually arrived. This is how pathetically easy I am to manipulate. I, I arrived in the sort of dreary, bit of dreary weather. Mm. Thought, oh, I don't, you know, why am I away from the South Coast? But then grew on me over the weekend. Um, yeah, a few nice, a few nice squares. Um, nice bit of interaction with fans in and around the city. Cool stadium. Nearly died on the cab ride over there, but once got there, lovely. Tell us more. Just a bit of. Uh, a bit of naughty swerving across lanes when the when the driver didn't see the exit, but we we got there fine. How so much don't cheese? Worry. Oh, loads of cheese, mainly for breakfast now. Actually, I've yeah. pivoted. Yeah, is that mm. something that you've continued um, in England? Been, yeah, been really, really. Con- oh, not in England, no. <laughs> but I've been consistent when I've been over there for sure. I was in Leon, had lovely three days there. Actually, um, good good fun on on Saturday night. Well done to all the Wales and Australian fans who sort of packed into this this bit of of Leon with the. Uh, the local cultural highlights like Le Welsh Beer Bar and King Arthur's Pub. You you really pushed the boat out and found local French places and you had a nice time. No, it was great atmosphere in Lyon on a Saturday night. And, and yeah, fun game on Sunday. Um, speaking of highlights from the weekend, uh, Charles, I'll, I'll come to you first. Give me a highlight. Uh, I think it has to be for me, Ireland, South Africa, Saturday night at the Stade de France. Um, incredible game of rugby, um, befitting a final um, and yeah, in the end, there was what five points and five meters in it. So you know, so close, an incredibly physical game, an incredibly incredibly intense game, gripping. You couldn't take your eyes off it. Not stacked of tries. There wasn't a basketball score, but just shows how diverse rugby is. That you can have a low-scoring game that still keeps your attention for eighty minutes. And we can get that in the final again, can't we? Potentially, we can. if all things play out. I don't I think mean, we can get it before the final. No, but, but that, we we'll can get it in the final. We'll talk about what that might look like. Um, Charlie, give me a highlight. George Portugal, yes. particularly Portugal's second half performance. Just such a fun team. Already had a soft spot uh, for them uh, post their game against Wales, which I was at. Um, but yeah, they uh, just gave me more to be pleased about. They're, they're so fun. 
uh, Patrice Lagasquet can seriously coach because he they've got a really they've got a really clear identity which is moving the ball backing their pace couldn't quite get over the line but seriously another another uplifting performance from them yep yeah that was excellent loved those two games um mine would probably be be off field I, I got I bumped into Andy Friend in, in Leon on on Saturday night the former Connaught coach and Australia Sevens coach who's who's much loved in the uh, in that part of Ireland and and will be much missed now he's heading back to Australia um a long chat with him about all things Connor and all things Ireland which is which is useful because our our guest today is actually also someone else with a Connacht connection, isn't it, Charlie? It is. So we grabbed hold of Pete Wilkins, who's um, Connacht's head coach. Actually, the first question was, "How are you doing without? How are you doing without Andy Friend?" And he was saying about his his team now consists of um, Mark Sexton, Johnny Sexton's younger brother, who's a, a skills coach there. Scott Fardy, who's mm. got some got some World Cup tales in it in him as well, um, and John Muldoon, who's moved over a Connacht legend, but has moved back over from. Bristol, but yeah, we got him got him chatting about uh, Matt Hansen, uh, Bundyaki, who has just been a revelation this this tournament. But also, he spent a bit of time in the Island camp last year for the New Zealand tour that actually started this run of sixteen wins that they're on. And I just kind of wanted to speak to him a little bit about the mentality within that within that camp, the blend of personalities. If you think about people like Andy Farrell and Paul O'Connell, are two of the most magnetic, charismatic guys in the sport. Over over the over the last few years, um, and just how that all works together, and he was he was really interesting on that because speaking speaking from a coach's point of view, he was saying that you get real progress when it's a it's a camp that is prepared with with individuals within it who are prepared to challenge each other on on ideas, and that was a big a big thing that came away from what Pete was saying. It was really interesting stuff, and with Aki in particular, we'll, we'll chat more about him later. But the fact that he was kind of struggling for form a bit maybe a year ago and not necessarily in in Ireland's reckoning and not actually struggling to get game time for Connell as well just shows how, what a fantastic turnaround it's been yeah absolutely and, and undoubted first choice I, mean, I think we had a discussion last week as to who Ireland might pick in the centres for this game and I think we all went Aki completely obviously completely vindicated that decision to, to, to start Aki alongside Ringrose and, and have Henshaw on the bench obviously Henshaw himself is a fa- fabulous player but Aki is sort of at the minute, if you're picking a World 15, he's about 12. I can't think of anybody. Maybe him and Dante would be competing for, mm. for an inside centre spot in a World 15. I mean, yeah, just what a what a renaissance from him. Yeah, it really has been great fun to watch, actually. L- loads of good content on the website at the moment, including Charlie uh, in great detail picking through Australia's miserable night in Leon on, yeah. on Sunday, which I'm sure you did with absolutely no pleasure whatsoever <laughs> to be fair the, the pervading feeling i think people people were saying sort of online while they were watching it this is just a bit sad now. sad yeah. sad is because certainly from around the 60 minute mark we're going to get into the game in more detail aren't we but from around the 16 minute mark it was just such an inevitable unraveling of an inexperienced side who aren't very well coached that missing some of their best players mm. it was although having said that um you know wales deserve a lot of credit and hopefully even though that the headline on that piece is pretty brutal. There's some, um, it highlights some positive things that Wales did as well. I mean, it was a complete Australian abomination, wasn't it? From from the 60th minute, they, that you're right. Unraveling is a really, a really, really good word. I mean, there was, but but you say from the 60th minute. I, I must admit, having watched that game from the first or the fifth minute, I didn't think Australia were going to win. I mean, Eddie had spoken about how how important a positive fast start was for them and the opposite happened they gave away a penalty at the opening rook didn't they with Man. with Dave Parecki not rolling away 
Uh, and then at half time, it was the same again. They, they they got Australia got turned over from the from the restart from the kickoff, uh, held up from the kick, and it just it was it was a, a really really sorry night. And yeah, it, it's not nice to see actually. It's 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 nice to see Wales, <clears throat> you know, sort of proving some doubters wrong. But it's not nice to see how far Australia have fallen. You know, a lot of us will have very fond memories of Australian rugby teams. Look at the World Champions in 91, 99. 84 Wallabies, one of the greatest teams of all time um, with, with, with legends throughout and to see where they are now, basically a rabble. I mean, I know they were missing their two best players who are, uh, not meaning to bang the World 15 drum again, who are, they are touching World 15 status. You know, Taniela Tupo and Will Skelton. I know they were missing them. But even so, if, that, if, if missing those two players meant that we, that we lose you know, that, that they lose that game to Wales, then I think that's something that most people could swallow. But to lose in the manner that they did, they shouldn't be losing like that. Yeah, we'll unpack it a bit more later in the episode. A couple of columns as well on Eddie Jones. Um, bizarre situation after that news broke about him reportedly having an interview with Japan. Um, Fiona Thomas was down at Sandy Park to see how the Red Roses got on as well. So loads on the website to have a look at. But let's start our episode by diving a little bit deeper into what was a cracking game between Ireland and South Africa. We hoped it would be a blockbuster in Paris. It, it always was probably the fixture that we circled when the, the draw was kind of made and looked at when they were going to be playing each other. One We were probably the most excited by defending champions, number one team in the world. And, and Charles, we got we got a belter, didn't we? I mean, it, it sort of had everything that you would have wanted that game to have, I think. We absolutely did. I mean, I, I don't, there are very, very few criticisms that I can... That I can level at the, at the game as a whole, taking all the different elements that we would dissect and digest. I thought Ben O'Keefe, um, is, the referee's job nowadays is very, very difficult, and I know he's had a lot of uh, copped a lot of flack. I think that just happens now in big games. I just think that is, you know, that's just par for the course now. But personally, I, I, I really think that at the minute, with the state that rugby union's in, if the referee is not deciding the outcome of the match, if there's not deciding the result then I think they've probably had a good game and I don't think Ben O'Keefe decided the result of that game. I was I was happy with his performance. I think there's probably a couple of things that he might th- think that he got wrong, but that's probably the case in every single rugby match that's ever taken place. Um, and the two teams themselves were were phenomenal. You looked at Ireland. Ireland looked a bit shell-shocked in the first 10. South Africa came storming out the blocks. The line-out went completely to pieces. Ireland's line-out went completely to pieces. But then they shored everything up and that is a sign of a good team, isn't it? You know, back, back's... Backs on the ropes, shoring it up, finding a way to win, and actually not just sort of grinding out a victory either. You know, they say that sort of good teams can can win even when they're playing poorly. Well, this wasn't even the case. They still played well. Um, they they played some lovely rugby. You know, we had we had Sexton's timing of the pass to Aki often at twelve was just sublime. Like it couldn't have been better. Um, and I mean, you're looking at Aki against Dale Ende there, and I mean, Dale Ende played one of his best matches for for a, a good while, and even so, was still sort of outplayed by Aki. It was it was an awesome, awesome contest, and if we saw it again, I don't think anyone would be unhappy. Really interesting point on the refereeing. So I bumped into a bit of a clang here. I bumped into Alad Walters at Lille Station on my way back, and one of the first things he said was, "What do you think of that last mall turnover?" And I actually said to him. I mean, I probably made a bit of an idiot myself, but I just said to him, oh, well, the thing about playing the box isn't it? Is ev- all of those contest areas are so so ferociously contested that you sort of can be wrong both ways or you can be right both ways. And I didn't realise I'm chatting to a guy that coached the box for to the last World Cup and then I sort of realised at the end of my point, like, you know that better than me. <laughs> but no, that was, I thought, I agree with you. I think you're always going to be able to catalogue a load of things that referees do 
do wrong in games because that's the nature of it especially more so as heightened when South Africa are a team that based there's an amazing clip I think from the Chasing the Sun documentary where um, Razi Erasmus says I don't want you to get into 80 contests and win 60 I want you to get into 100 and 120 and win you know win 90 and with every player on the pitch doing that in that mindset then it's absolutely it's absolutely going to be difficult for those officials and I thought O'Keefe put himself in a good position to get a get a get a big knockout game later on in the tournament what I found about out, what I found about the game sort of more so was in the was thinking about it in the context of the whole tournament and I kept thinking back to South Africa losing the first game of the last World Cup against New Zealand and now almost more so that because they've won the last one they're a team that won't take too, too downhearted about losing a game that essentially does matter because they get France rather than New Zealand but it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things they've still got to keep winning all the way to the final and I think those subplots so they didn't maul Hardly no. at all until the end. They're 100% doing that mm. in, in more important games. Um, there's just a few wrinkles. They won't go 7-1 again, I don't think, um, just because they'll give themselves a little... Certainly Pollard will come back into their gun 23 and they'll give themselves a little bit more leeway because with the 7-1, they couldn't change up their back line at all until the end because that's too much of a risk. Um, I just found it really, really interesting knowing that those sides knew that they could probably meet again. Yeah, Because... And if you think if you talk about Ireland's sorry, if you talk about South Africa's miss kicks off the tee, you have to talk about Ireland gaffing the line out. There are things that both sides will be um will know that they can improve and that's what's so exciting. That's the curse of the Telegraph Rugby podcast, the line out, because we bigged it up against mm. the, how it went against Tonga and how effective it was to yeah. launch all their their attacking Just, moves and they lost the first four, didn't they? Which was a bit of a mess. Absolutely. And on the goal kicking, um, I've written about this. Manny Libet played beautifully at fly, fly half. Razi Erasmus made this point in the post-match um, interview um, about how excellent he was and, and, and people who were saying that Andre Pollard should have started. Well, Erasmus made the point that A, he wasn't 100% fit and B, how do you know that um, with how well Libet played with the ball in his hand, how do you know that we would have got to those positions to win those um, penalties to win those kickable penalties if Pollard had played we might have been losing by more you know mm. you, you, you can't say oh the goal kickers lost us the game because he missed six points you know that just doesn't work it's just basic chaos theory there is there is so many other variables at play who's to say if if Libert could kick those three points the island wouldn't have gone down the other end and scored a try you know you, you just can't you, you can't boil it down to that um and uh, the, it, it, there is no shame. There is no shame whatsoever for South Africa for the Springboks to come within five points and five meters of beating or not losing to the world's number one ranked team in the pool stages of the World Cup. They won't. They won't be down. They won't be sort of dispirited by that at all. I don't think. No, I think that's fair. I think you're you're kind of pleased in in some ways if you're both sides because there's stuff there that you can rectify within time for the knockout stages when it really matters. At the same time, I don't think there was too much damage to either team off the top of my head in terms of injuries or knocks. I, I just wanted to mention Andrew Porter's performance. I thought he was fantastic for Ireland and the way he's kind of... The way he's one of many players who have kicked on in the last two, two sort of three years within this team. They, they play such an efficient brand of rugby Ireland but the, and he's certainly a big part of that with how he contributes from a rut clear out and a carrying and a tackling perspective. And he went 75 minutes, I thought, as well. Scrum pretty well really as well. Good. I, I, I thought he was one of the standout performers. And what about what about that James Lowe tackle on Etzebeth as well? While we're talking about sort of standout performance, I mean, he's just James Lowe's awesome. defence. Full stop. He got a jackal turnover, didn't he? Yeah, at one early point. on. That was obviously a big work on for him. I think he's been totally, totally kind of open about saying that, and he was out of the side briefly because of that. We led to believe. 
So yeah, register all, all, part of all the game. That's his first time he's played South Africa as well, which is quite yeah. cool. Like quite a nice way to to get off the mark. Did, I just wondered if it changed anything you felt about in terms of eventual winners of this tournament and and whether watching South Africa wobble slightly but not majorly or Ireland putting away South Africa with kind of a statement World Cup win in a way whether that had made you Charlie feel a bit differently about who might win it, it all it made me think Ireland are more likely to now although having been on on the South Africa bandwagon for for a long time the only way it dented it I think was the hooker situation and how I think if I was one of those scrum halves I'd be worried in training um, mm. because I think as soon as one of those, if there's a hint of an injury to one of those, we might see is Joseph Dweber would be the next, mm. the next yeah, cab yeah. off the rank, yeah. because I just think that gives them a little bit more solidity. But then again, the South African coaching team is extremely, he's been around the block. Um, they're extremely streetwise, and they'll know various ways as to how they can get over the line. So I'm still high on South Africa, but I'm a little bit higher on Ireland. We've touched on Banyaki's performances. Obviously, he was good against Romania and Tonga, which you, you kind of, you take with a slight pinch of salt given the opposition, but that continued against South Africa where he was sensational. So to hear a bit more about him and about Matt Hansen, we're going to hear from Pete Wilkins at Connaught, who spoke to Charlie earlier this week. Pete, welcome to the Telegraph Rugby Podcast. First off, how, how big a change for you personally, Pete, is, is going about your work now without Andy Friend? And Talk us through, you've assembled a really a team of really interesting characters there with John, Muld- John Muldoon, Scott Fardy, Mark Sexton, those those guys. It looks like a really kind of intriguing blend you've got. Yeah, it is. It is a big change. It's funny, I, I had a you know a fair amount of input in, in the rugby that we've played, the planning of that rugby and I suppose the rollout of it to the squad over the last two seasons really, but especially last year, the, the last year under Friendly. Um, so I've had my um, my hands over the rugby aspect, but... To be in control of, of the whole show and, and I suppose having that influence on what goes on off field in terms of trying to shape that environment and, and I guess the culture that binds everyone together that enables you to play that rugby, it's been fascinating for me. It's been a great challenge, but but one I'd be really excited about. So, yeah, it's a little bit strange not having uh, you know, a boss on the corridor to have to run things by, and um, but, but that sort of sense of freedom and autonomy is pretty exciting. So, you know, I'm enjoying the role. Um, as you said, we've got a a pretty fresh coaching group here as well. Um, Cully Tucker, who's our, our scrum and breakdown coach. Cully's renewed to go round again, but but then we've got three new guys. John Muldoon, you know, doesn't need much introduction to to Connacht fans. Played over three hundred games for the club, captain the side from number eight. So he's a bit of a legend in these parts. But Moll is here doing uh, line out and more for us. Uh, we've got uh, Scott Fardy, who's joined us as defence coach. Who again doesn't need much introduction. He's um, you know, had a tremendous career, especially there with the Wallabies and the Brumbies, and, and then coming over to to Leinster, so he's well known in these parts too. Um, so, and then Mark Sexton, younger brother Johnny. So Mark's here as a skills coach and also assisting me with the attack. So we've, we've got a really neat blend, very different characters, very different rugby backgrounds, but but all are bringing their take on the game, and I'm really enjoying working with them so far. Um, I wanted to get your insight, Pete. You've 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 been into the into the island camp reasonably recently on the uh, tour of New Zealand last last July at the start of this. 16 win run that they're, they're on um first of all could I just ask you about the blend of characters they've got um if you think about Andy Farrell and Paul O'Connell they'd be two of the sort of most magnetic charismatic personalities you probably find in the sport could you tell me about a few of your lasting memories of that time you had with them maybe what you took away um and how it influenced you 
Yeah, I think um, there certainly is a really interesting blend of, of characters there amongst the coaching staff. And I, I think that's something that, that, you know, certainly adds to the success there. I think, um, as you said, you've, you've got Andy there and, and Paul O'Connell, both legends of the game in, in their own respects. Um, you know, Simon Easterby is there as defence coach, who also you know, had a terrific career himself and, um, you know, provides a, another angle. He took on the team defence once, um, once Andy moved up to the head coach role. Um, so you've got John Fogarty there as a scrum coach and, uh, and Mike Cat there as a sort of skills and backs coach. So it's a really interesting blend of guys. Like they're all hugely respected in, you know, not just Irish rugby circles, but, but beyond that. Um, but again, very different personalities. And, um, you know, there, there's certain members of that group are very methodical in the way they go about things. Others who are very much about the feel and um you know sparking the sort of emotional and 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 sort of some of the non-tangible aspects of coaching so i think they bounce off each other really well but i think importantly they're not afraid to challenge each other and and all of them are very very good at you know parking their ego and and looking for the answers that that give the team the best opportunity and the best sort of rugby development so i think that was really good for me to see of how you blend a coaching group and certainly something that we reflected on quite heavily when we were looking to put together this new coaching group for, for this new chapter here at Connect as well. Um, I think one of their great strengths as a group is is their ability to to sort of embrace the chaos at times and, um, you know, just accept that there are things that are going to be outside of your control, whether that's within a game in terms of how the opposition goes or the referee or the weather or, or whether it's logistics around the game in terms of travel and injuries and preparation. I think that New Zealand tour was a really great way. You know, Andy talked about it himself at the time, but a way of taking people out of their comfort zone and, um, you know, having some of those unseen obstacles that, that come your way on a tour like that, three test matches against the All Blacks and, and the two midweek games against the Maori. Um, how do guys approach those challenges? Uh, how do they accept what they can and can't control and, and see who can actually handle that and who can come out of those situations stronger or who finds it all a, a bit too stressful that it inhibits their performance and that's not just players that's that's coaches it's backroom staff it's the the whole family i suppose so that was really interesting the way they they're just prepared to embrace those those difficult situations and as i said see who who thrives in that sort of environment because you know you know when you get to any sporting contest but particularly a world cup there's going to be a few of those curveballs that come your way so their ability to to i suppose keep an open mindset and, and a positive attitude with that but but take the learnings and the growth from it as well it's it's pretty powerful and um you know that was prominent in that new zealand trip and and i think you're seeing it now in the world cup as well i was going to say speaking of chaos facing a 7-1 bench or facing the world champions with a 7-1 bench who are trying to squeeze you in a way that you've lost games previously i guess in in ireland's case um could i ask you about your your sort of thoughts on on the weekend watching that and how impressive it was that Ireland managed to get through. Yeah, I, I think it, it's really interesting. And, you know, it's, it's a key bit of their mindset as a group, but but also, you know, directly impacts some of their rugby decisions and the rugby success on the back of it. And um, as you said, there was a, a fair amount of, you know, feedback and, and judgment on, you know, Leinster's performances against La Rochelle and having come unstuck against them a couple of times. And, and when you're up against real physical opposition, and, and would Ireland be able to handle that at this World Cup? And, and I understand why they, those question marks. Um, you know, that said, uh, I think that game the, uh, the other night, it, it showed that, um, you know, not, not just that they can survive against those physical teams, but they can find a way to thrive. And it, it might not be having a massive amount of ball in playtime or a massive amount of possession, but they can still be really effective for what they do get. And, and at the same time, muscle up and, and stop the power game that comes at them. So, Look, it's it's only one game, and, and you know both South Africa and Ireland obviously have 
you know, tremendously challenging knockout games when they get to that stage. But uh, I think it was a really important part and not so much proving to themselves, but probably proving to the outside world that, um, you know, they're, they're able to handle that physical challenge and, and still assert themselves in opposition in a slightly different way. Um, you've got four players at the tournament, I think I'm right in saying. Finley, Mack and Bundy with it, with Ireland and Lever Fafita with Tonga. Can I ask you about a couple of the couple of the Irish the guys in the Ireland squad, the backs specifically? First of all, Matt Canson, he just seems to be a total, total breath of fresh air, both as far as his character and the way he plays that and he really embodies we've spoken before about the free-spirited sort of way that you want or open-minded way sorry that you want Connacht to play he seems to embody that yeah he does as you said Max a, a terrific character and I think you know the more people get to know him and the more airtime he gets you know you see um you see just what a unique guy he is and um I think you know he, he's really enjoyable to work with um from a coaching perspective partly because he, he's just a really great human being you know but but has that kind of mindset that that you know he does embrace the challenges and he's not afraid to look for different ways to to get success on the field. Um, he's got a pretty good balance, I think, of, of being really true to himself. Um, there's no airs and graces. You know, he he wants to let that character shine through, which is part of his rugby identity as well as him as a person. But he also understands what the team needs from him, and I think that South Africa game was really interesting because it was a game where he didn't necessarily get you know a lot of opportunity to carry in a lot of open space. Um, but he made sure he did what the team required. And if he if he had to catch a high ball and take a big tackle, he did. And if he had to do his work at the breakdown, he did, or carry through some heavy traffic, he did. And, you know, I think that understanding of, of the importance of not going into your shell, of really expressing yourself, but at the same time, understanding how you fit into the, the team's framework for success. I think, you know, Max got a great ability to manage that balance. And, um, you know, certainly he's done it really well in his Ireland career so far. And it's something we're trying to, trying to really encourage, you know, back here at Connacht as well. Excited to watch. Bundy, um, you arrived at Connacht, I think I'm right in saying, in, in 2017, which is the year that Bundy made his test debut. So mm-hmm. having been as close to him as you have for, I guess, his entire test career, how how has he developed in that time as a player? One thing that has, I, I get, I must have, I hope it struck everybody, it certainly struck me watching, is, is pace in open field, both over the warm-ups he had that, scored that try against England but then in a few games and you think oh he's doing that against Romania oh he's doing that against Tonga oh no no he's done it against the Springboks as well it's um that's been so impressive no it really has it really has and I think what he um you know what he's done over you know certainly these two World Cups now he's just got himself in unbelievable physical condition um you know he's he's naturally a warrior he, he will carry through brick walls for you he won't shirk any challenge and, and we've always known that that abrasiveness and robustness has been there and, and I suppose that power game. But to get himself in the condition where, as you said, he's, he's getting those high-speed involvements as well, and not just one-offs, but back-to-back, he's staying in the game after that. He, you know, he's not just having a big sprint or a big carry and then drifting off to the end of the back line for a rest. He's he's looking to be in the moment. And he's, he's looking to to get those those back-to-back contributions to the team. I, I think that's enormous. Um you know, he's a great character to work with. He, um, you know, another one we talk about sort of free spirits, you know, he, he's got a big personality and um, his energy has such a big impact on the group. And, uh, you know, even even the days where he might not be getting much ball or the, the game might not be going your way, he, he's a constant voice and, you know, certainly a constant menace to the opposition, you know, whether that's in terms of his um, his influence on the game or, or, or just the energy that he brings to a side. So he is great to work with. I, I think, again, he thrives in that Irish environment. It, it keeps him on his toes 
constantly. Um, and, and I just think the amount of minutes he's played for them and the impact he's obviously had in this World Cup shows how important he is to, to the country. And, and, you know, to get 50 caps, 50 international caps for anyone, but particularly for him with the, the journey he's taken to, to move across to Connacht and, and prove himself at provincial level, get his opportunity with the national team. I've, I've just got so much respect for that. So, um, you know, long may it continue and, and, and certainly through this World Cup. Do you, do, you sense a, do you sense a sense of perseverance with him as well? Because I think I'm right in thinking around January, he was struggling to get in the provincial side with you guys. And, and this is a serious response to that, I guess. Yeah, it, it really is. I, I think, um, you know, I think he's someone who, who has enormous personal pride in his own performances. Um, and, uh, you know, like anyone in, in terms of those performance levels across a career or across a season, it can ebb and flow at times. Um, but I, I think the thing that's never gone away from Bundy is, is you know, a, a real passion for the group to succeed and, and to help push the group. And, uh, you know, certain groups need that at, at certain times. And I think he just wants to see the team do well. And, um, you know, it was a challenging time for him when he wasn't on the field very much for Connick. But he, he worked through that period. And I think, you know, seeing him come back into a Connick jersey later last season and then, as we said, the performances now for Ireland – you know, it shows that he is someone that, that is resilient, um, but but also perseveres. And I think that's his whole rugby journey. You know, I, I was over at the Reds um, when Bundy was at the Chiefs and, you know, he wasn't a regular starting player there at the Chiefs and he came across to Connacht and, and probably a bit of an unknown to many people and became such a key cog in that Connacht team that went on to win the Pro 12. Um, you know, and, and the legend has kind of grown from there. So I, I think the fact he's still training as hard as he is and, and still contributing the way he has. Um, you know, he's not a man who's going to give up, you know, his opportunities and his jersey easily in any team. So I'm just excited for him. I'm excited to, you know, the rest of the world are getting to see the best of him as well. And it, it's a great reference point for him moving forwards because hopefully there's still plenty of rugby in him beyond this season. And, um, you know, he, again, he's laying down a marker of what he can achieve and what he can bring to an environment. It's brilliant. Speaking of legends growing, Pete, being part of... Um, Ireland's um, success in the last few years um, from the vantage point that you've had is there is there a sense of maybe destiny is a too cheesy way of putting it but certainly that the stars are aligning quite nicely at this World Cup and for this group of players because it's a special group yeah it's an interesting one I, I guess my first insight into that was, was that tour to New Zealand last summer and um, it struck me that the group was quite prepared. I mean, players here and, and management staff quite prepared to to articulate what they wanted to achieve. They talked last summer about you know making a nation proud. They they talked about wanting to be the number one team in the world. They didn't hide from that. Um, and uh, at the same time, they they had that balance with understanding that it wasn't going to be a smooth journey to get there. So I just think there's a neat balance in terms of that ambition and, and not being afraid to to walk towards that. But at the same time, accepting you're not, not going to have everything your own way. And, um, you know, sometimes you've got to find your way out of difficult situations. So I, I think that's their strength, if anything. I, I don't know if it's a feeling of destiny, but I, I do think it's a feeling of, of absolute determination, but but also the adaptability that's required if, if you're going to get there. And, um, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see how, how the next few weeks play out for them and, and obviously other teams as well. Pete, thank you so much for your time. I know you're super busy um, and good luck for the rest of the season. I appreciate it, Charlie. Thanks for having me on and, and all the best. Charlie, can I just ask you a bit about Matt Canton, actually, and how he's he's kind of developed into this excellent player who the Wallabies are just watching each week and tearing their hair out that he, he somehow slipped through the net. Such a So suited to how Ireland play. We spoke last week about 
Andy Farrell wanting his attack to be messy and his wingers to be a big part of that as far as how they roam around the field, pick up touches. And I believe Matt Canson back in Australia was sort of a could play 10. You could really see that. You know, he's, he's a lovely distributor. He's quick. He's deceptively wiry and pretty strong, certainly in the Tonga game. He, he was just so there was so much conviction about his carrying it despite all that heavy traffic and the same was true I thought in um, in the South Africa game I'd, I'd, I'd sort of suggested before the South Africa game that those wings would be really important to South Africa and how they outflanked the blitz um, I think they were for that for that one big Hugo Keenan break in, in the first half but Matt Hansen didn't actually get the ball he came off his wing when Ringrose had it got absolutely smoked without the ball but then the ball then that gave was that was the triple pullback yeah that gave the space that was incredible presented the space over over the top and you know that's another thing we're we're not talking about really that that's a big chance for Ireland to score and change the change the complexion of the game and to have South Africa chasing it Um, but yeah Matt Hansen's fantastic player with guys like Dan Sheehan Jamison Gibson Park um James Lowe, they've really kind of come in this World Cup cycle and, and enhanced Ireland. Um, and those guys, the impact of those guys is is the reason for what you see now. He's just, so, so naturally skillful as well and so, so, so aerially, aerially so good. He's, he does all those sort of silky bits that you, the, the, the sort of the cherry on the cake, as it were, for, for an international winger. Like, so naturally skillful. As you said, he's, he's deceptively strong, deceptively fast with the ball in his hand. Has a really good feel for the game. But he also does the nuts and bolts really well. The kick chase, the... Uh, take, um, jumping and aerial his aerial dynamics are just brilliant. Um, you don't see him dropping too many high balls, and, and, and I think that's that's become a massively important sort of component of, of modern wing play. And, and, and he does that very well. He's sort of Anthony Watson esque. Anthony's probably a little bit a little bit quicker, um, a little bit quicker in that than than, than Hanson. But Hanson's probably got a slightly better feel feel for the game, as you said. I don't think Anthony Watson's ever played ten. Apologies, Anthony, if you have. Um, but uh, Mac. You know, you can, you're right. You could envisage him playing fly half. Maybe not. Maybe not for Ireland, but but maybe at a slightly slightly lower level. So sometimes it's useful to see the numbers just to back up if you feel a player is playing quite well. And for Bundyaki, he's second for clean breaks in the tournament on eight. He's tied second for tries, obviously on four, because Henry Arundel's just had a, a blind there <laughs> and scored five in one game. The the one that is blowing my mind slightly is that he's first for like runs or carries on fifty three. And the next best is David Nineshvili on Georgia on 33. So he's made 20 more runs than any other player in the tournament. That is bamboozling. I think that also shows how much Ireland, when things aren't, to create that width that we saw when they did make this break so wide, they do just need someone to chuck up in the middle. And particularly against Tonga, for a lot of the game, he was just doing that. He was just bashing into carries, bashing into contact, tiring out defenders to create space. Mm. So there's, two, there's almost two ways that they've used him. They've used him as someone who's breaking the game line and showing sneaky speed to get around defenders for tries but also just the work rate he gets through is sensational isn't it he'd be among Ireland's most valuable players and if you said that in January when he was struggling to get into the Connacht side which is what we what I spoke to Pete Wilkins about that I mean that would have sounded ridiculous mm. schedule works quite now for Ireland because they have that gap before the game against um, Scotland at the end and also good, good for the players getting some time with the families good for our comrades and the Irish press back as well who get a few days off as well a few days break how how useful is that going to be do you think for them well it's tricky isn't it would you rather have the momentum coming out of Saturday and just get Scotland done 
or actually is it quite a nice time after such a physical game to just recuperate and then go into the game? I was going to say they'd be pretty sore, wouldn't they? So yeah. That, that's, a, yeah. that's quite a nice week off to have. Maybe refocuses them as well for Scotland mm. because they lose that by more than eight points, they're out, which is unthinkable because mm. they've won 12 of the last 13 against Scotland and they beat them at Murrayfield by 15 points. Just repeat that for the for the fans at home. What was I'm, that? I, well, I hope I'm right, but I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty sure they've won. What, it's won in the last 13. No, no, before Scotland that. Before, before that, about if they lose eight by what? Points. More than, if they move, lose by eight points or more. So if, they, if Ireland don't get any sort of bonus against Scotland and they lose, then I'm fairly sure they're out on the head-to-head. Crumbs. Um, yeah, well, so, so nothing changes for Scotland despite, you know, they've, they've just got to keep winning. I think in ordinary circumstances, Ireland probably would want to play Scotland this Saturday. I think ordinarily off mm. the bat, to keep that momentum, to not risk sort of slipping into a lull, but I think you're right with how physical and how intense that game was on Saturday night against the Springboks. I think they might, on this occasion, uh, treat it as a, a unique fortnight and a unique Saturday whereby actually recuperation and recovery of those bodies ahead of as you say and but it's not a foregone conclusion that game at the side of France Ireland obviously will go in as as, as large favorites but you know with a lot of pressure on them potentially to, to, to not lose by eight points if Finn Russell turns up and starts pulling strings you know stranger things have happened we've seen far stranger things happen in the World Cup I, I almost want it now just yeah. for the, just well, we for haven't the... really had our upset yet. Sorry, Fiji Australia. Sorry, <laughs> Fiji Australia um, was a sort of semi-upset. I think Georgia drawing with Portugal is a semi-upset. Maybe I don't think you can really class that as a full upset because they didn't win. So we haven't had our upset yet. I think maybe Scotland beating Ireland by over eight points. I don't know. Am I being am I being disrespectful to Scotland by suggesting that? I don't know. I'd say we've had surprise results without having shock results. So Wales blowing out, you know, winning by mm. that much against Australia is a big surprise. But yeah, as far as a kind of big t- turning over of a big favourite, I don't think we've probably had that yet. No, and I mean, obviously, similarly, but even more scarily, if Italy beat France, Les Bleus, pack your bags. You are. Then all the, very we, the Charlie Morgan, we, the Charlie Morgan millions from the first episode. God, oh, that's yeah, what yeah. it's it. What, yeah. was it. what was it? Italy to get through? I think no, no, France, France to, to not get through. It was 33s. I didn't put any money on it, obviously, because I'm not an idiot, but well done if you did. And, <laughs> and it happens, which it won't. So. <laughs> you never know. Um, the very final thing about the Arnsafka game, we mentioned Ben and Keith earlier, but no, no cards and no sort of sightings and, and I want to say no TMO referrals for foul play. Plug for another mm. podcast here. I had to listen to the 42 and Dan Levy was on there and he went on a really, really interesting sort of uh, monologue about cards and how th- bigger games potentially like that really focus players just into going low because you know how much uh, trouble you're putting the rest of your team in if you do if you do concede it well even a penalty but a card sort of on top of that and he actually was saying I just can't understand how pros are being as lazy to stay up right now mm. and, and some of the cards we've seen in the warm-ups maybe a little bit in the well maybe sort of the Ethan de Groot one in against Namibia that was that players sorry. can be precisely players can be more diligent than that mm. and I think I think the game the magnitude of the game the Ireland South Africa game um, just must have focused those players so much. It's a real compliment to their skill and ability to perform under Absolutely. pressure. I thought that we got that they managed to get through that without any cards. So, full credit to both of them. Um, on to next, a, a bit more of a lopsided scoreline. Leon on Sunday night, where oh Australia, what are you doing? Okay, Wales forty, Australia six. Record breaking scenes in Leon. 
Wallaby's biggest World Cup defeat, Wales' biggest win over Australia, most points Wales have ever scored against Australia. Um, that last bit is quite funny, though, because the record that they broke was one from last November in Cardiff for the most <laughs> points. So it's not stood for very long. But hey, a record, a record is a record. Um, I had the honour of being there, sat up at the very, very, very top of the stadium. Um, proper- cool stadium? Yeah, it is. God, you went it on the is. roof, were you? It is. I was not far off. If I'd touched an arm up, I probably could have grabbed onto a rafter and, and gone swinging. Yeah, it was It was pretty high. Um, yeah, very cool stadium, particularly from pitch level, if you're doing captain's runs or whatever and getting a look around. Yeah, yeah, very, very, very good. Um, and and you said earlier, Charlie, I think it was you, or maybe it was you, Charles, said that it was just quite sad, sad watching it. And that was honestly how it felt with 20 minutes to go because the contest contest was done. Wales are knocking over a drop goal when they were up thirty two six just to keep, you know, keep the margin just yeah. in case of a comeback. Like it was it was pretty desperate. It was kind of old school the old school way to beat Australia is if you can soak up their phase play and to the point where they don't have many ideas left. And you can squeeze them in mall, squeeze them at the scrum. And Wales just did that. And and as well as Wales played, they did they, they played so well because they didn't have to do loads. There was just this confidence there that if they could as I say, just if they could absorb pressure for a bit and Australia had a couple of chances in the first quarter didn't they Donaldson's break where mm. he looks he goes left instead of right where he's got a couple of oh, a couple so of runners that changes the game didn't it didn't happen Bell, when you, Bell, when, Bell got close to me Bell got close and, yeah. and within five meters and, and they went back on. for a penalty yeah, went back for a penalty um, and then obviously when they when they get another penalty and go for touch kick it backwards for a start and then just run the worst line out in Let, history let's just do a couple of minutes on Ben Donaldson specifically because there was a lot of talk in the build up about Carter Gordon going out, Donaldson coming in. Donaldson has this this just wild first half an hour where, yeah, like you say, makes that break, goes for a completely wrong option, chance is gone. Before that, produced a brilliant sort of kick, tactical kick to touch, which put yeah. Australia, put Pinwells back in the corner, and he thought, okay. But he also, at one point, kicked a restart out on the full. He made a sloppy error under the high ball against, I want to say... Josh Adams, but I can't remember who. Oh, no, no. Tate McDermott passed the ball back for him to just do a really basic kick out of his 22 with no one around him and just dropped it, which was unforgivable. Potentially at fault for switching off a little bit for Wales' first try inside ball as well. Yes, but that was it as well. Is, he was chasing whole, Jack Morgan, wasn't he? This well, that's is the because whole, he's not played there. You know? the, right, this is the whole frustration of the whole... The, the, the reason that Eddie Jones's sort of decisions have, have set up the players to fail because Ben Donaldson had a pretty iffy... Super Rugby season. He's come as a ten fifteen. I think he's even categorised in the utility category mm. of Australia's squad. Mm. Um, you've you've purposefully left out tens like Quade Cooper and Bernard Foley, who can, even if they're backup, they can be a calming influence. Um, it's just throwing sort of things and hoping they stick. And when they don't stick, you can't really be surprised, you know. And especially if that when if that first quarter, if that first quarter everything goes well for Ben Donaldson and he gets a pass away for the try, you know, he doesn't make a couple of those more elementary errors, and what and Australia are up, then it can be a, a virtuous circle, and, and he he can go on to have a really good tournament and steer steer Australia um, deeper into it. But no, because the, the errors compound themselves, and there's it's just there's just less. There's just less to go on for a coach, isn't there? When when you're sort of taking chances like that, and that's what that's more for me. Why I feel for the players in the, in those situations. For, for those counting the minutes at home, Donaldson got 52 against Wales, whereas Gordon got 50 against Fiji last week. So he lasted ever, ever ever so slightly longer. Charles, the thing where it all seemed to turn 
watching where I was was in the scrum because the first couple of penalties against Wales was, were kind of technical offences where Gareth Thomas was getting pinned for scrummaging outside the tight head and Gareth Thomas was sort of looking at the Wayne Barnes like, sure. And then it happened twice. But then as soon as that tweak got corrected, Wales scrum was just utterly rampant. Like the Wallabies took off James Slipper at half time to try and bring mm. on the replacement tight head to, to steady it. And, and it had no effect, did it? A no. really dominant scrummaging performance. No, not at all. In fact, if, if, if anything, it actually got worse in the second half. It was, it was more emphatic. Uh, I mean, well, this has sort of come, as we've already touched on from Taniel Atupo not being fit and, and, and James Slipper, who is, is nominally a loose head, switching over to tight. He he can do that, but do you really want, given, given that the, the, the two positions are distinct, do you really want in a do-or-die World Cup knockout, basically a knockout match, to be playing a loose head at tight no you don't and it, it it killed them it really did it really you know they, they couldn't get a foothold in the game anywhere at, at no point you know at the, after when when Australia was still in the game on the scoreboard in that first half an hour at least they were could rely on their scrum a bit admittedly they were for technical offenses that Wales were committing um at scrum time but you did think oh okay well if this if they carry on like this at the scrum the Wallabies they might have a chance they might have a chance um, but it did not carry on like that, and they got obliterated. We've we've now had stay in the scrum from Wayne Barnes a couple of weeks after Carl Dixon told I think one of the Wales got too much scrummaging, oh, and they gave him a free kick. Yeah. Yeah. All good fun. It'd be a prop. I mean, the final penalty count was nine for Wales, twelve for Australia, but it felt more like twenty for Australia really, yeah, really with the way did. the last quarter played mm-hmm. out and how they were just getting pinged for everything at the scrum and and everything elsewhere. I sort of want to just. Get all the Aussie misery out of the way, and then we can we can throw some deserved flowers at Wales. With with, with what happened in the the post match press conference, um, this might just be me sort of speculating, but I was about three rows away from Eddie Jones, and he, he looked a bit watery eyed, as as if the sort of the momentum of what had just happened was was hitting him as he was kind of going through it. But he was kind of typically defiant when asked about a, a pretty sensational story and, and huge congratulations to Tom Deason from the Sydney Morning Herald for, for getting that out on on Sunday morning that reporting that Eddie Jones had, had allegedly had an interview for, to become Japan's next head coach because that that process is currently underway by the Japanese Rugby Football Union to find a successor for Jamie Joseph. Now Jones fiercely denied this in the press conference and naturally was asked about the, whether the story was true but also the ramifications of whether of, of what it had meant for his players' sort of mentality going into the game. And there was a question to to Dave Parecki, the Wallabies captain, about how much it had affected the players. And then Jones responded in, in typical defiant fashion with, with this after that Parecki question. Sorry, Eddie, just to go through it and then move on from it. Did you do a job interview with uh, Japanese rugby a couple of weeks before the World Cup? And if so, what was the thinking? I don't know what you're talking about, mate. Eddie, do you have a second interview lined up with the JRFU? I said I don't know what you're talking about, mate. Can you give Wallabies fans your absolute 100% commitment that you will not be coach of Japan next year? I'm committed to coach Australia. Next year? I'm committed to coach Australia. That doesn't sound very definitive, Eddie. Thank you. Next question, please. Dave, this morning a a story was um, uh, printed that was very well sourced about, as you've been hearing about, maybe Eddie joining Japan next season, next year. He's already said it's not going to happen, but I just wonder, from the point of view of your team, what kind of psychological impact did that have on you today? We didn't turn up tonight, so it's got nothing to do with the outside noise. It's just got to do with our performance. We weren't good enough. 
I really take umbrage at the questioning, that people are questioning my commitment to coaching Australia. I really take umbrage at it. Um, yeah, I've been working non-stop since I've come here, um, and I apologise for the results. I keep saying that. But to doubt my commitment to the job, I think, is a bit red hot. So we're not going to deal with any of those questions any further. So I'm happy to talk about Wales. I'm happy to talk about Portugal. If you want to keep going down that line, I'll excuse myself. So do you want to decide what you want to do? I mean, you'd kind of expect him to, to say something along those lines. I, I just... I couldn't get my head around it it turned the whole of Sunday into a circus and almost made the game an afterthought because all of a sudden the focus wasn't on whether Australia could beat Wales it was on this Eddie story mm. myself and, and Elgin Alderman from the Times kind of rushed to this um, fan event at a place called Wallaby House in Leon, which was meant to be like a nice fan park where fans could sort of hear from um, the chief executive for war and other sort of dignitaries from Rugby Australia um, spotted Bill Pulver there, the old the old chairman as well. Like it was the, the whole idea was it was meant to be like a a pep rally essentially, and it turned into this twenty journalists turning up with phones quizzing for war. Like the sports minister spoke first. And I'm not sure anyone was 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 quite listening to what she had to say, even though it was all very pertinent because everyone just couldn't wait to ask for war about the situation. It, it, basically, the day turned into a bit of a circus and it's no wonder that Australia's heads went because I think the heads of everyone else had gone by the time we got to kick off, if you, unless you were backing Wales. Have you ever seen body language like that from a group of coaches during a game? Ha- like hands over mm. faces. You've seen sort of anger and obviously we've seen anger from Jones before in, in both his, even, you know, in, in charge of England and in charge famous of... Famous gifts. Famous yeah. gifts. But to, to have that prolonged hands over mouth by multiple coaches, what you look, what, if you see that on the big screen as a player, what are you thinking? You're thinking, geez, yeah, we're really messing up here. Mm. These guys think they can't help us. Um, it's, it's a, it's, it must just be totally demoralising it, it means nothing now but the mood at the captain's run the day before was, was very different and very kind of defiant not necessarily in the press comments but when the Wallabies sort of came out they had a boombox playing two-pack really loud two-packs all eyes on me they could tell that the pressure was on them they were relaxed they were chilled out not in a casual way that suggested they would lose they just looked in quite a good place and then in boom, the zone yeah and then boom that story comes out heads obviously <laughs> rattled as soon as they lost a foothold in the game against Wales, it wasn't like there was anybody on there, because we've talked about the lack of experience so much now, wasn't like there was an on-field general who could rally them. Oh, I think God, it's, it's, maybe been, it's maybe been a little bit more defiant since, you know, saying, oh, that, that story didn't affect us because they're not technically out yet. Are yeah. they? Yeah. Fiji no. could lose both of their next two games and then Australia somehow scrape through into yeah. a potential quarterfinal pigs, against England. Pigs can fly as well. Um, I mean, tellingly... Tellingly, no denial, no denial from Eddie, was there? I mean, he, 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 he wouldn't address the story and sort of played dumb almost with it, uh, but no denial. He's, he did not say, no, that didn't happen, and I will be the Wallabies coach next year, in terms of mm. maybe, maybe he's trying to get ahead of the game because he thinks he might be sacked, because as we've mentioned, this is the first time, this is going to be the first time that Australia have failed to progress from the pool stages at the World Cup. Also, no denial from the Japanese Rugby Union who were approached yesterday, um, they just refused to comment. Now, if 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 you were them and it absolutely didn't happen, then you would say, wouldn't you? I don't know. Am I being naive? No, no. I, th- I think that's a fair point. To, to pull back the curtain a little bit, both Charlie and Charles texted me and said, "Please send us the audio from the press conference." As I was sitting down into it, because we knew it would be we knew it would be a good one. Um, the reaction in Australia has been 
as fierce and despondent and and sort of um, miserable as you might expect. Bernard Foley was was one of the people who who was in Nice, I think, last week, was he? So he's he's been in the country, probably with a pair of boots back, just in case, um, who, who tweeted for the first time in, in ages. It, it didn't have to be like this. You've had calls for Jones to go. You've had former players just decrying the lack of um, experienced players in the squad and how unfair it is and all these guys who are like in their mid-20s, like Wallabies players who are going to be tarnished by this forever. It, it's just all a bit desperate. And, and Dan Schofield has written a column on the Telegraph sort of talking about, yes, like, you know, Eddie's Eddie's at fault here, but there's such wider structural issues in Australian rugby. There's a line still going there in less than two years. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever felt more sure about a 3-0 series Lions win in my entire life. No. I mean, 3-0 I mean, and, like, and the rest. I mean, it's going to be 4-0. It's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be absolutely colossal. And it, and it does make you wonder, I, I was chatting with somebody about this over the weekend, wouldn't it be... Wouldn't it almost be beneficial? It would never work from a commercial standpoint. I'd rather watch three games between the Lions and Fiji in, in Suva or sort of around Fiji yeah. than what is just going to be a total drubbing in Australia. Yeah, no, I'm completely with you. Um, yeah, just very, it was just an upsetting night, as we've already touched on, a very upsetting night. And um, yeah, well, it remains to be said. You, you know, know it's the, bad the, 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 landscape, the landscape of the, of the sport in the country. Is has sort of been in recession for a number of years anyway, and this is not going to help. You know, you spoke to anyone who knew who knew Australian rugby last week. They said that that game against Wales was absolutely massive, such a such a big game, such a such a sort of you know um, Titanic day for 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 the sport in the country and how important it is and how so momentous for for the sport to recover and, and and then for them to crumble like that is just it's just very sad you know you you see jibes on on social media which i know should always be taken with a pinch of salt but also you know there's no smoke without fire of how it's the fourth the fourth code of 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 a ball sport of footy in in australia um you know you've got declining declining participation numbers at grassroots level you've got declining attendances at super rugby people don't really care about super super rugby yes the wallabies attendances are still healthy uh, and seemingly the population still get behind the Wallabies but you do fear that now after this will the loyalty and will the passion be as fierce um, maybe not I mean obviously we're a long way away um, and we're trying to predict the future so we have no idea but it, you know you do fear for them a little bit don't you we do you know it's bad when we all feel this bad for Australia because that they would they might not necessarily feel the same way about England if, if, if the tables were <laughs> yeah. if the tables were turned. And and also just as an aside, you know, I've I've been the bigger man here. I've risen above the Eddie proud, Jones. Proud of you. Yeah, the Eddie yeah. Jones jibes. I've I've rarely addressed them, but I'm going to have to on this occasion just Whoa. go. Where are you, Eddie? Whoa! Hey, hey, hey! Oh my goodness me! That's my that's my moment in the sun. The podcast studio is just shaking. If the mic the... wasn't sort of fixed to the table, I'd drop it. You should have ripped it off and, and said that. Yeah. Um, what, do the Dan Cole Stone Cold. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's that's something nice. We'll have to talk about that. Um, let's let's say nice things about Wales because we absolutely should do. Charlie, can I just ask you about how impressed you were by Gareth Anscombe when he came on twelve minutes in? I mean, I mean, Dan Bigger goes down. Some of us wrote really nice features about Dan Bigger in the build-up to the uh, to the game, so that was that was good to see him go off really early with an injury. Um, but Gareth Anson came in and, and showed excellent control, didn't he? I mean, admittedly behind a steamroller of a, of a pack, but he impressed. 
Yeah, he did. He got absolutely smoked, didn't he? Uh, from that Donaldson break we were talking about, he got that interception okay, when Donaldson can link up with that inside support. And I think it was Coro Betty. Absolutely whacked. Oh, him. yeah. And he, and Jesus. It yeah, was, was one of those really sort hit. of, again, like a really a really demoralising moment for a player because the sort of ref came over and, and you could hear him talking. I think it was talking with Tom Foley, the TMO. And I was saying, is he all right? And he's like, yeah, he's just winded. Just a big hit. And Anscombe was in a lot of bother. And you could see, I think players when they're, you could see with, with the outburst, outburst of emotion like there was for his chip for Tompkins, try Tompkins, who was fantastic as well, by the way. Awesome. But yeah. Anscombe just, this big celebration. You'd love to see that because that's a player who's, just so much has built up to this point for him and it must just be feel fantastic it did just on that he spoke about it in the mix zone afterwards and how it, it, he had that horrendous time out with his knee injury the amount of surgeries he'd gone through and how that that whole kind of spell had just made him have a, a better perspective to appreciate the, the bigger moments in the games and to actually kind of enjoy them and he said he was getting texts from home back in New Zealand and Wales laughing at how much he'd gone for it but he was actually like you've just got to You've just got to appreciate it. Nice little drop goal as well. I, I'm really yeah. intrigued by Wales' attack, and I wrote a piece um, a couple of weeks ago that wasn't meant to be derogatory at all about Wales' attack, but linked to linked to England's attack, which is if you can't be in Ireland and if you can't have that intricate phase pressure and, and loads of different runners, then you be a Wales, because Wales are just very good at getting the ball into the hands of their dangerous runners just quite in quite a simple, straightforward way, which is just as, in, as incisive, and they'll have a couple of clever strikes like they did for um, Gareth Davis try Gareth Davis is just an unbelievable support runner they've got a lot of a lot of good athletes they've got a lot of powerful players and when they lose momentum they're not afraid to go to the boot because they've got a good kicking game as well by a good kicking game are you talking about Jack Morgan because, as well, yeah. oh, Captain Jack. Because I was, I was just wondering if Anscombe got injured, who would they put it ten? And I was like, it could be Thomas Williams, or it could be Jack Morgan, because he's now for a flanker come up with a lovely crossfield assist for Reece Summit against uh, Fiji, and then he's he's banged a let's call it a twenty two twenty two, not a fifty twenty two against yeah. against Australia. Charles, he's been not. I wouldn't say a, a, a revelation of the tournament because I think I think people were appreciating how good he was but given where he's sort of I mean Warren Gatlin admitted afterwards I kind of threw him in the deep end a little bit Jack Morgan but actually he's he's thriving and on thought on Sunday night when he, he was sort of you know bloodied nose tackling everything scoring tries he looked great didn't he Charles? Absolutely total warrior the beating heart of that Welsh team um, has really stepped up as captain. You know, all, all the cliches about leading from the front are all you know com- completely justified for him. But it's it's not just the leadership; it's the fact that he's an outstanding player as well. Virtually the first player on the team sheet, and yeah, caused caused Australia no end. And Fiji, he was he was amazing against Fiji as well, and he was brilliant in the warm ups. Um, yeah, I mean, he looks. Um, not few had high hopes for Wales in this tournament, but I think through sort of sheer grit and determination embodied by Skipper Morgan, Captain Jack, um, you know, they, they really could be looking at a semi-final. Mm. Mm. That siege mentality that, that Warren Gatland, I know, loves seems to be seems to be installed there. They're looking very promising. Right, we're going to get into the rest of the weekend's action now, including how England get on against Chile up in Lille. Right, Charlie, how many tries for Henry Arundel in Lille? Five to put him top of the try scoring list of the whole tournament. Outrageous! Um, you, you were there, as we as we know from your taxi adventures. Can you give us an idea of? 
And first of all, what the atmosphere was like, because I think I've seen quite a few Chile fans have travelled over. How was that? Yeah, before the game, really cool to see loads of Condores fans and their team uh, rewarded them in the first 20 minutes, didn't they? They were kind of... England blew a few chances as has kind of become a trend and um, in, invited pressure upon themselves. But as as Steve Borthwick mentioned afterwards, they were resilient in defence and they were pretty quick, quick with the ball, quick to move the ball and tap for that first 20 minutes. It actually... And for England to score seventy-one points in effectively an hour is is actually pretty pretty impressive, to be fair. Yeah. But um, no, there was it was yeah quite quite a nice atmosphere. A few more empty seats around the middle sort of um, middle sort of tier, which was quite quite odd. But yeah, generally quite a nice atmosphere. And then when that when those sort of jitters of the first twenty minutes had gone, um, England kind of settled in settled in quite nicely. We've had. Um glimpses of Marcus Smith at fullback sort of during the warm-ups and and briefly in the World Cup so far but this was his first start there I, I appreciate that maybe the quality of the opposition might factor into your thinking about it and whether it's a long-term ploy but but can you see England using that in the knockout stages and, and is that actually quite a valuable weapon for them to have I can I really like it I think it's I think he's more certainly more likely to play at fullback than Henry Arundel is on, on the wing. To be clear, Henry Arundel's fourth try was a really nice finish. Mm. I think... Is that the chip and chase? That was. Yeah. I think Dan Cole's scoring the other four, to be honest. <laughs> maybe not Maybe not the fifth. Maybe not the fifth, but certainly a few of the others. Um, actually, maybe Poor not. Poor Dan Cole. The third, the third he ran on. Slander on Dan Cole. I the mean. third he ran onto a grubber as well, which I don't think Dan Cole's outpacing anybody either. But no, you know, you know what I mean. Um, I think Smith is more likely to play at fullback than than Henry Arundel is to play on the wing in, in a in a big game. Um, and I like it. It's not just I know the, there are just these caveats around England, aren't there? It's just really boring to keep saying yeah, yeah but they're playing against this team. But Smith has now gone well against Ireland, against Fiji, against Japan, and now against Chile. And it's not necessarily that he's he is beating players and he is um, picking off kind of tired defensive against the worst team. But it's as much as a mindset as anything. It's this urgency and this awareness to play for space and help the. He was he was saying sort of he was classically sort of. Um, self um self deprecating afterwards but he said look i've just got to tell those guys inside me that i want the ball him having that urgency can transform that sort of urgency can transform an attack and i think he's doing a good job of that and if it is only an option off the bench whether england goes 6-2 or 5-3 um i think it's i think it can be really valuable who sorry i was just going to say charles who who else kind of stood out in that game that would would maybe who wasn't in the team that played Argentina and Japan, who who might have done enough well, to force a rethink. Well, I think that the big sort of positives were I was on player ratings and I gave Arundel Smith, Theo Dan, Jack Willis, and Owen Farrell eight. I think Farrell's return was a positive. I think Willis um, has slid down the pecking order, so it's a real positive that he's he's gone well. I'd like to see him on the bench, I think. Yeah, well, well, the, the big games. Well, for Smith. If Smith is a is a live option, which we believe he is for bigger games, and that is a really that's a that's a a tactic that lends itself to a six two. And if you're loading Willis as well as another back row, it's just a way that England get the best out of the squad they've got. Mm. And the squad they've got is characterised by positional flexibility, so that lends itself to six two and a lot of good back five forwards. I'm gonna I'm gonna slightly put a dampener, and I don't mean to be. Boo. Contrary for the sake of it, and and grumpy and cynical, but just in the opening twenty, I think that um, 
I think Smith did butcher a couple of overlaps oh, yeah. that he'll be very disappointed with. And I think that it, it you know it's easy to get lost in the hype and, and lost in the sort of in the, all the good stuff that he did. But I think those two. You know, if, if you're butchering opportunities like that in a quarterfinal or a semi-final, that's verging on unforgivable, and I think that that will count against him, maybe. Well, you're only getting one of those, one or two of those in a quarterfinal well, or semi-final, quite. aren't you? So, yeah, you need to take them. Quite. Um, so, uh, but I would, if, if we are sort of doing this sort of the backline thing, I mean, I would, I would, I would keep Stewart, I think, and I would have Smith on the bench, and I would keep Stewart, and I, I personally would have Arundel. I mean, I, I know we think it's unlikely. Um, Given given how well May's gone and, and and sort of how well he suits the way that England want to play, but I think I would have Arundel. I think I'd start Stewart at fifteen, just because I think that solidity at the back in in the bigger matches is is very valuable. Um, and again, especially with how England want to play, which is very kick heavy, um, having him there is 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 very handy. And I think that if you went Ford Farrell, which I would go Ford Farrell, and I think they're certainly leaning towards Ford Farrell at ten twelve. Smith at 15 is, is sort of playmaking overkill, isn't it? I would have, on those wingers, I would say, I didn't mean to totally kind of cast cast the thought of picking Arundel out there. I think he would be, I would like to see either one of him march. It's, it seems to me like, unless they stick with Daly, which I know he's a real safety blanket as far as the positioning and the, and the, and the aerial exchanges, the kicking exchanges. But I think if England are really looking to lift their ceiling... They'll probably want two of Arundel, Marchant, or Daly out wide. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, I mean, but it sounds like you're pushing with Dan Cole on the wing too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd, do, so. I'd I'd have Mar- I'd have Marchant, I'd have Marchant and Arundel on the wings. Lawrence at thirteen as as an out and out sort of threat at thirteen with Ford and Farrell ten and twelve, and then I'd have Smith and Daly with Youngs on the bench because that brings something different off the bench, and you've got a lot of positional flexibility there. And I'd also have, like you said, and like we've just discussed, Dan Willis, Martin, these guys who played very well coming off the bench and, and, and attempting to, to wreak havoc. I thought Chesham off the bench looked very good as well again. He's very he's very sort of he's becoming very important, quietly important to this team, I think. I think Agreed. he was in the warm ups, he was obviously coming back off that off of a very long term ankle injury and, and was still finding his feet a little bit. Uh, I, I think he's been very, very good in this tournament so far. Just to finish off on England, um, Dan Schofield had a good story about Arundel's kind of availability long term because he's joined Racing 92 in France, and obviously that always gets a bit tricky with the logistics of when he's eligible and when he isn't, particularly given that the, the RFU have quite rightly allowed players who are part of clubs who went into administration to be selected um, while they're based on France. So Arundel can play in the Six Nations while he's at Racing, but he, as things stand, he will not be available for the summer tour to Japan and New Zealand. So I, I wonder whether, I think for the World Cup, it's such a short-term thing. You just pick who you think is best for the World Cup. They won't be thinking about the long term. But it will be interesting when it gets to Six Nations time whether they think, well, you're not going to be around in New Zealand this summer, whether they still pick him or whether they, they don't. That's something that we'll have to keep keep an eye on next spring. Um, France against Namibia on Thursday night was all going along fairly nicely and everyone was just checking their fancy points for Damien Peno and then... There was a <laughs> sorry, Charlie. Can, I didn't have him. can you express no, that grimace in, in audible? I don't want to talk about it, but I didn't have him. I had uh, I had Jalibert. I captained up Jalibert. Did you not have Peno at all? No. Wow. Or Arundel. Oh, I had Jalibert and BLBRA. Yeah. Okay, that's, oh, right, that's, that's how you say it. Um, so yeah, it was all going well, and then and then Johan Dazel, um <clears throat> caught Antoine Dupont on the cheek, and and France France went into meltdown on mm. Thursday night and into Friday morning. Charles, can you just give us the latest? On what's going on with Antoine Dupont, 
when might he return and and will he have anything interesting on his face when he does well this is this is the, the million dollar question isn't it so that the latest is that he's back with the squad on thursday he'll return to camp he's currently at home resting he had surgery late on friday night um, and they're expecting him to return to training on Sunday, which is really quite miraculous. That is, if he continues showing those signs of concussion, because obviously there's the cheek fracture at play here, but there's obviously an HIA and a, and a concussion protocol and return to play protocol that he must follow as well, because it was a really strong blow to the face. And then on Friday, he will go for an appointment to explore the possibility of having a Haranordiki style mask um, fitted, which presumably he will play with um, to expedite his return to action, potentially for a quarter final, is what is what the latest reports in France are. They're saying that he is out of the Italy game, which I think we all sort of expected, which is which is still quite big news because, as we've already mentioned, France have to win that game, and they will have to win that game now without their captain and their and their talisman at scrum half. And Maxime Lucou is seemingly destined to start at scrum half there. And then they might even be without him for a quarterfinal against potentially South Africa. But the hope is with Mask, he might be back for a quarter. And I think, I think it's looking very, very, very likely that he'll be back for a semi if France get there. That's your roundup. Let's get into your readers' questions. Thank you very much for your questions as ever. Please do just send them in to us over on, um, oh, I hate calling it X. Let's just yeah. just send them to us on Twitter, Twitter on on Sundays and Mondays, and I promise we we will consider them all carefully and then use them in the podcast. I wanted to start with one that we had from Mike, and he said, "All this chat about Stewart or Smith, how likely do you think it is that we see them on the field together, changing roles depending on circumstance?" There was a period, Charlie, where we were quite keen on Freddie Stewart as a as a winger, wasn't there? Oh, wait, were we keen on it or were England keen on it? I can't. I'm keen on, I don't I don't mind it. Um, yeah. Stewart and Slade and Farrell and Smith were all on the pitch together with Slade at fullback, I think, in that last, in the finale of the game against New Zealand. Certainly possible. The one um, reservation I'd have with it is your defensive setup is going to be compromised somehow, even if it's with the backfield. And we saw messing around with the backfield, what's just stuck in my mind, potentially because it's the best bit of skill I think I've ever seen live, is Antoine Dupont's left-footed 50-22. That was when England were trying to muck around with mm. the backfield a bit. So... You know, there's there are they're going to be sort of um, trade offs. England are going to have to make everywhere to get the backline they want. It's just about being smart. And, and I don't think I don't think Stewart is against the a big the big four nations. I think in a semi final, I don't think Stewart's quick enough. I think their their back three their back three will exploit him. He's quick enough to play fullback, and I'm not saying he's slow. But if you look at the sort of back threes of the other nations, you look at the the, the, the Colby Arenso, you look at France who have got Peno and and, and Bielbire. I, I don't think I think they will they could skin Stewart. They could skin Stuart, I think. Just to combine sort of two questions we had um, from one from Worcester Faithful and another from Lance Bradley, who's the former, the Gloucester chief exec, just basically both getting at the same thing. How do we sort of reduce these mismatches that we're occasionally seeing where teams are getting pumped by loads of points and also make sure that we're giving the likes of Portugal and, and Georgia and Spain and the other teams regular game time by sort of coming up with a new tournament or more matches. What's your what's your solution, Charlie? I think first it's dangerous to say that it's been a a completely positive tournament for emerging nations because mm. N- Romania and Namibia have been have been disappointing. It's kind of Fiji and Uruguay, isn't it? Who's yeah, sort of for sure. Portugal, Portugal as well. Portugal although too. they, you know, although as as we said earlier, that draw with Georgia isn't a massively a 
shock result. I think it's time certainly to have a coherent strategy around it and whether, because it seems a bit haphazard whereby the sort of positive things like the Fiji Drew side and the Moana Pacifica side in Super Rugby aren't necessarily part of a wider plan or they don't seem to be. Maybe I'm being unfair there. Um, so one positive thing that keeps coming back I think is T2 Rugby on Twitter that's a sort of major advocate of it is that is just expanding that under 20 tr- uh, trophy under 26 nations competition mm. um, so those teams in the Rugby Europe Championship can have a grounding at, at age group level because that's just going to be positive that's going to it's going to pay it forward hopefully mm. you'd, you'd hope that and the, the age-old thing as well that always that you know it's the classic the cliche that always rears its head is, is is promotion and relegation to the six nations in some form even if that involves a playoff you know, they are the, the the home nations and, and france and italy are, are staunchly against it we are told and we're told it's not going to happen but it's just such a surefire way to ensure that, that certainly in europe anyway in europe that those emerging nations get Sort of, they have something to play for, and they have a carrot, uh, a reason to, to improve and to continue to this 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 trajectory of improvement, which has been mightily impressive. You know, you look at where Portugal were and where they are now, um, and certainly, you, you know, Spain are often forgotten about in this because obviously they they were booted out of the tournament because of they they failed an ineligible player, but but they they are beneath Georgia. They're the, they're the emerging nation. They are the coming. They are the coming nation. The, the, the club scene there is thriving. Um, uh, and the national team have seen vast, vast improvements, and they should really be at this World Cup in in, in place of Romania. Um, so that's the way these 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 um, these nations need more competitive fixtures against better nations more regularly. I would open it up the World Cup up to twenty four teams as well. I would be an advocate of that because the, the the main drawback seems that we get more hidings, more more thrashings, but we're getting them anyway now with with twenty. So why not give the give these teams some exposure? More exposure, more exposure to high-level rugby. I know they need it between the tournaments as well, but let's let's start somewhere, you know. Might be one for our post-group stage, kind of deep dive into the tournament because we could spend about half an hour trying to work out how to how to fix that. And, and just the final question from John about the All Blacks, who we haven't spoken about because they they've had um, a, a bit of time off and they've kind of were able to watch Ireland South Africa from from afar. And he, and he says they'll be at full strength for Italy, so we're waiting to see their intensity. No one's really talking about them. What can we kind of expect from them? I, I spoke to a couple of Kiwi journalists who were at the Wales-Australia game who were quite downbeat, actually, on just whether New Zealand have enough to really trouble Ireland and South Africa and France, which actually ma- made me take a bit of a step back because I'd sort of been wondering about whether they were a threat. Charlie, what do you think? Uh, to, to steal someone else's opinion a little bit again, the, um, I was with Stuart Barnes for a little bit of last, last weekend and he said the difference with this... AB's team versus previous iterations is that they've got a horrible 15 minutes or 20 minutes in them whereas other All Blacks teams didn't have that and I think that's fairly pertinent when you think about how they collapsed against England for example at Twickenham. Um, I keep thinking about how they picked apart South Africa in in Auckland fairly recently and how that can be their sort of ceiling Um, however they've probably yeah they've probably got more more chinks in their armour than than other previous sides i agree with john that the italy game is going to be quite interesting they're missing ethan de Groot for that which is mm. a, a big loss um and i agree that ireland will have to be 100 percent on for that quarterfinal because you know there'll be there'll be a bit of simmering resentment from new zealand about that series that kick, kicked ireland into gear but at the minute you'd say ireland were kind of fairly significant favorites wouldn't you and you'd want to see a bit more mm. from new zealand before that quarterfinal 
Right, that's it for today. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Charles. And a big thanks to Pete Wilkins as well for his insight on Bundyaki and Ireland. Um, there's no game for England or Ireland or Wales this weekend, so a bit of a quieter weekend on the horizon. But still lots of games, still plenty to keep up with from the Rugby World Cup on the website. So please keep an eye out for all of our work and all of the work of our colleagues as well. There's going to be lots to dive into. Enjoy all the action. We'll catch you next week. But until then, thank you and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.